The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The following podcast contains explicit language. My name is Sylvia Rivera. Dera before Stonewall was a hard era. We were at a point where I guess nothing would have stopped us. We were ladies and waiting, just waiting for the thing to happen. And when it did happen, we were there. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Represent. I'm Aisha Harris, your host, and we'll be dedicating this entire installment to a documentary released on Netflix earlier this month, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. Johnson was a prominent and pioneering Black trans activist who was found dead in the Hudson River in New York City in 1992. Her death rattled the queer community and sparked protests. Though the police quickly ruled it a suicide, many strongly believe to this day that she was murdered. The Death and Life of Marsha B. Johnson is part biography and part investigative report, and follows Victoria Cruz, a trans woman of color, as she attempts to solve the mystery of Johnson's death and bring her case to justice. In a conversation with her you'll hear a little bit later, she talked to us about how she became involved with the film, her friendship with Johnson's close friend and fellow trans activist, the late Sylvia Rivera, and much more. But first, I have to note that when we spoke to Victoria earlier this month, a controversy about the making of this doc had not yet bubbled over into mainstream media. A Black trans filmmaker named Raina Gossett accused the death and life director David France, who is white, gay, and cis male, of stealing her research for a long gestating film called Happy Birthday, Marsha, which you heard a clip from at the top of the show. France has denied it, and Gossett has since pivoted away from direct accusations of plagiarism to posing a larger, more eternal question— Who gets to tell whose stories? In an op-ed for Teen Vogue, she wrote, Too often people with resources who already have a platform become the ones to tell the stories of those at the margins, rather than the people who themselves belong to these communities. My colleague Evan Urquhart wrote a piece in Slate last week detailing the controversy and imagined what it would be like if, for the next five years, only trans people, and especially trans people of color, were allowed to tell stories about their own communities. He joins me now to talk about all of this. Welcome to the show, Evan. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, I mean, I would love to get your first thoughts. You've seen the documentary, correct? I've seen about half of it. Okay, cool. And when you watched it, had you were you aware of the controversy that was happening or were you sort of immersed in this in a way uh, before this sort of came to the surface within the media? Yeah, I was watching it uh, sort of after the controversy had surfaced. I think what struck me about it is that it's very like very somber it's very like dark and sad kind of tone and so that was sort of I actually turned it off halfway through because it was very sad mm-hmm. yeah and and the, like that's one of the things that you talk about in your piece is this idea that if we if, if trans people were able to tell their own stories 
they wouldn't all have to be so sad. We, there's no need to always sort of wallow in the sadness. And and that's sort of what Raina Gossett was trying to do, it seems, from her pitch and from the, the short sort of clip that uh, we, is featured on, on, the, on the article. It, it seems like she, instead of doing this straightforward documentary, decided to eventually turn it into more of like a celebration of her life and a sort of experimental uh, celebration of her life. And I mean, it's... I, I, I hate to always like make comparisons, but I, I do feel like this the way in which you talked about um, what this could have been uh, or what um, a having a trans person tell these stories could look like. It, it reminded me of we had a conversation about the movie Detroit uh, earlier this year and how that movie, which was directed by Catherine Bigelow and tells a story of real events that happened um, to a, a group of young black men uh, in the 60s. That movie also, in many ways, sort of unintentionally, it, it focuses in on the violence and the sadness and death in a way that uh, feels less active. And I'd love if you could talk a little bit more about um, what you were talking about in your piece and how that relates to what uh, Reina is trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I certainly can't speak for Reina, but um, I think the trans community is steeped in a lot of this violence and hopelessness and sadness. And we really, I think, are yearning for more positive portrayals and things that will lift us up and things that will give us strength. Um, and so I do, as a as a trans person, I often try to not focus on the really dark kind of side of things, or if I do, to really try and have some of that uplift, because I need it, because I think the community needs it. And I think that uh, black trans woman like uh, Raina Gossett would really, like she did really try to put more of that uplift into her work. And I think that's valuable. And I think that is something that even the most well-intentioned cis creators like like don't have that urgency for that positivity and to bring that in. Right, right. And essentially, she's been working on this. It's hard to tell if she's been working on this longer than David France. I think that's the case, or at least it seems like um, she kind of had the idea before he did. I think the more recent reporting has, to some extent, backed up David France's timeline, which is that he was active in the 70s and he knew Marsha, um, and he sort of always sort of wanted to tell that story. And that I don't want it to be, um, you know, taking away from, from Rena um, or her work, but it does seem like he was involved kind of early, early on and interested in telling this story. So... Obviously, she's Marsha P. Johnson is is very much a a figure who is beloved by the the queer community. So I, I get it. It doesn't seem surprising to me that David Franz or Arena or really any anyone else in the community might want this story to be told. But then the question becomes, you know, who who gets to tell the story? And because David Franz is more established, and as you already noted, is 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 white male and um, is cisgender. Um, he, you know, he had access to things that Reina did not have. And that seems to be an, an ongoing thing uh, when it comes to having trans people of color within the industry and within uh, the filmmaking world is, is the, the resources are not as readily available as they, they are to those who are not 
within the trans community. Yeah, and I, and this whole question, as I'm sure you know, this whole question of who gets to be established, who gets to, I mean, to have built up the career that looks good on paper for funders or for, you know, um, for Netflix or, or for whoever it is, it's so much easier for David France to have a career that looks established as opposed to someone like like Gossett, who I, I think is younger, but, you know, as opposed to any, uh, you know, trans person or black trans woman or or anyone um, in that space. And I think that if you don't make some kind of an effort, I mean, to let trans people tell their own stories, then how do we become established? How do we start to build up that pedigree kind of in the first place? Exactly. It's a whole chicken and the egg sort of situation. It's like you say we're not uh, we're not established enough. We're not. Uh, we haven't put in enough time. We haven't put in the work. But then you you don't give pe- them the option. They don't get. You don't give them a chance. You don't take a chance. And of course, then it just keeps going back and forth in that cycle. One thing I did find interesting in the conversation we have with Victoria Cruz that's coming up after this is you know she talked about how. And again, we like when we interviewed her a few weeks ago, this was before we were aware of all this controversy. So we didn't ask her about this. But what I did find interesting is that she she talked about how she got involved with the film and how David France uh, and the the person he was working on the film with, they sort of they reached out to her and they pushed for her to be sort of the face of of uh, the investigation that was happening, like David Francis, I don't believe he appears at all in the documentary himself on screen. It's so it's interesting to me that you know we have David Francis; he's the name behind it, but Victoria Cruz is sort of the face of it and in the narrative, and that seems to be another thing that we are usually seeing is is using people of color, trans people of color, as a vessel, um, but not like allowing them to fully steer that that vessel. Yeah. And I think even just setting aside questions of, of fairness, I think there is that question of, you know, would trans people make something different? Would there be, you know, different values, different sensibility that, you know, that would be really valuable and that, um, and I think gets lost when, when a cisgender person is sort of taking the lead, like, like France did. Right. I mean, I I do want to note that within a documentary, they do allow for moments of these similar questions to be raised. Uh, There's a, you know, they have this running uh, parallel narrative that's happening between Victoria Cruz trying to investigate the murder of of Marsha P. Johnson, or the the death of Marsha P. Johnson, because we're still not sure if she was murdered or not, Um, and also Sylvia Rivera. But then there's also the case of Elon uh, Nettles, who is a modern-day trans black woman who was who was murdered and we know that she was murdered her um her uh her perpetrator her murderer is uh was sentenced and we follow that case and at one point someone someone outside of the courthouse brings up the idea you know you know everyone was here for gay marriage but why aren't they here for this when a a trans person of color is is being has been killed and they're not at this courthouse. They're not protesting. And these things are happening all the time. And I think one thing that the, the documentary does do a good job of is, is, is sort of laying out the, the tension between within the queer community, uh, between the trans people of color like Marsha and Sylvia who felt neglected um, and the, the rest of the queer community. Yeah. Um, I definitely think that it's going back to the, the dawn of the, 
gay civil rights movement, um, there were all these people who just completely got left behind. And I don't want to take away from uh, from David France's work in bringing these stories out, um, you know, to a wider audience. I just think that, you know, going forward, you can't really have have that that changing or having that looking different if you're not also thinking about you know who's involved making what and and who gets those chances and and also like like what the sensibility is of the story that's being told Mm -hmm. you also noted in your piece that you felt as though france france's position which is an underselling position but his from watching the film you got the sense that this was a movie that was meant to sort of cross over and in a way um not you didn't use these exact words, but what I got from it was the idea that you he wanted to convince people, allies to to sympathize with the the murder of trans people. Whereas if a trans person of color had had made it, it would have been less for other people and more for the community. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know there really should be there should be room for both. And I think you know, ideally something wouldn't have to be just for a wider audience or just for the community, but certainly um, when you're making something for a wider audience, there can be unaffected, unintended effects on the community. Uh, certainly, again, the, like the sort of the sadness that I felt when I was watching that documentary, I think is one of those unintended effects as a trans person when, you know, you just hear about you know, death and prejudice and being shut out of things all the time. And, you know, for a cis audience, this is either new or this is reinforcing something that needs to be reinforced. But it's very different when you're looking at something that's more for the community um, itself. Right. And I mean, like you said, there there should be able to be room for both. But I guess the unfortunate part of all of this is that, you know, David Friends has Netflix as a backup and and Reina Gossett does not. And regardless of what the subject matter is, whenever you have two films that come out with similar subject matters, which happens pretty often, whether it's a documentary in a feature or two documentaries about the same person, the same subject, usually one of them gets more attention than the other. And I guess it is a little bit sad that that might be the case in, in, in when it comes to this film. Hopefully people will feel inspired to see both uh, because I imagine both of them obviously will be doing two very different things. And because Marsha P. Johnson for so long, I think, has flown under the radar, especially for me, I was not aware of her until fairly recently. I, I think that it's great that these two things will hopefully coexist with one another. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the best possible outcome is that um, people are encouraged to look for this other film, which is very different. It's it's experimental. It's short film. I mean, I, I, I hope it, it finds more of an audience than it otherwise would have. I really do. Yeah. I mean, that's that's also a possibility as well. The like the silver lining of it all is that it could make it make an even bigger slash than it would have just on its own. Well, thank you so much, Evan. I, everyone should check out the, the article on Slate.com. We will put a link to it in our program notes. And it was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Marsha Johnson, queen of the village, one of the great people. This is one of the most courageous people in the world. I've always loved people. I always wanted to put on drag, and I never had the courage. He's totally free. If he feels like going out as a man, he goes out as a man. It feels like a woman. How do you know all this? If he feels like wearing roller skates, he wears roller skates, whatever. I know Marsha Johnson. Marsha Johnson, 
It's And now for my conversation with Victoria Cruz, who we spoke to earlier this month. Well, Victoria, it is a pleasure to have you in our Brooklyn studios today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The pleasure will be mine, I hope. (laughs) I think we're already off to a good start. (laughs) Okay. So you did not know Marsha personally, correct? I think I did not know Marsha personally. I would see her on the northwest side of Washington Square Park, and I would see her also at. but Sheridan Square. Mm-hmm. She would be walking around the village, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was hard to miss her, right? Yeah, like... it, it sure was. <laughs> but you did know Sylvia uh, Rivera. And she I, was... I knew Sylvia Rivera, yeah. like I said in the movie. Like, um, We didn't get along too well. At first. Because one of her girlfriends, her best friend, was actually seeing my partner at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it was like a catty cat thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, we played the dozens. <laughs> but you you came to be become friends with her later on down the line, and that was sort of your connection to I Marcia. lost sight of her for t- about 25 years. Mm-hmm. I did my thing. She did her thing up in Terrytown. Um, I then got uh, sexually assaulted and physically assaulted at a place where I worked at. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went and asked for for um, help from the community. And it so happened that at the meeting that we had there, Sylvia was there, and she got up, and she looked at me, and she says, I know you. Mm -hmm. And I got up, and I said, I know you too. And just then, this button that I wear of Marsha popped out of her left shoulder. She had it on her left side, and it just rolled to my feet. I didn't want to be at disadvantage with Sylvia, so I stood there. And another girl came, picked it up, and Sylvia says, no, give it to her. She's one of us. Mm. From that day on, we spoke with each other for about, till she died, twice a week. Mm -hmm. Whenever I needed help placing somebody in a shelter, in training house, I would call her, Rusty, or um, Chelsea. Mm -hmm. And they never once turned me down. Mm. And Rusty and Chelsea, what what are their last names Rusty and Chelsea Goodwin. Right, yes. And uh, they were advocates at the time, Mm -hmm. too. Yeah. And um, not once have they ever turned me down when I ever asked for their help in placing a trans woman. Of course, they would call at, they would come in at the last hour, like you say, like the 11th hour when we were to close. Mm Mm-hmm. And I said, what the hell am I going to do? <laughs> but you made so, it work? Yeah, well, they said anytime you need us. And when I needed them, they were always there. Mm-hmm. So Sylvia was sort of in a way, I mean, you saw Marsha, but Sylvia was also sort of your connection to Marsha as well. Mm-hmm. What about Marsha made you want to start this investigation? Like, why Marsha and and why this documentary, like, in, in, in coinciding with it? Well, I got approached by David France. I avoided him for six months. I had just retired. Mm-hmm. So I don't want it to do me. And uh, they, But they kept on <laughs> give, leaving me phone numbers from out of town. Mm-hmm. I have nobody out of town, so I don't have no long-distance service. Mm-hmm. And I says, what the hell do these people want? Um, six months later, phone calls and phone calls, phone calls. Finally, somebody left a New York number. And I was watching The View. <laughs> and I says, you know, I'm bored. And I turned over, and there's the number. I says, let me call these people, see what the hell they want. And I called them up, and they told me what they wanted to do. I says, well, this has to be spoken in person, you know? We made an appointment. I met them, and as soon as that elevator door opened up, we just clicked. 
And uh, David told me and Mark told me what they wanted to do. And I said, sure. I, I let them know that I didn't know Marsha personally, but Sylvia I did know yeah. very well. Mm-hmm. So it was their idea to sort of investigate the murder through the, the murder, documentary. Yes. Wow. Okay. But like what? So can you take me back to, I, I imagine you remember when she was found, like, what was that like for you? And and is that sort of what helped drive you to make... Because you were very... Watching the documentary, you were very determined, even when you're getting pushback from the, the cops who worked on the mm-hmm. case originally and even from people who worked with you at the Anti-Violence Project. You you called her, actually, at one point, the, you consider her the Rosa Parks of the I did the consider community. her the Rosa Parks of the community because she, she did her thing. Mm-hmm. And you weren't stopping her. Like her middle name was P, paint no mind. <laughs> but some things you do have to pay mind. And this was one of the events in our in our history, mm-hmm. gay movement history, the community's history, that we have to look, f- see what really happened to her. Mm-hmm. When we when I found out that she had been, you know, found in the Hudson River, we went to the spot where supposedly, like they said in the film, her body damaged the sidewalk. Right. You know, that to me, like, how can a body damage a sidewalk? His, she's dead. Yeah. And I saw that little plaque that they had there. So I says, you know, you know, the whole village felt her death because she was known by everybody. Everybody loved her. She helped everybody. She had nothing, but she gave whatever she had to somebody if they needed it. Mm-hmm. And a person like that, you know, needs to be remembered and just praised for being themselves. Yeah. And, and like I said, one of her favorite songs was This Little Light of Mine. And like, I love that song. I can, I, you know, like, I can identify with that song because nobody's going to put my light out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you talk about, you know, remembering her and, and how impactful she was on the community. One of the interesting things I found was when you went to go interview a couple of her siblings you know, they, they obviously loved Gene her. Gene and Robert, yes. Yes, they they obviously loved her and were close to her, but they were still referring to her as him. And and they also mentioned, you know, that um, one of them was like, well, we used to, we didn't, we didn't believe that she knew all these famous mm-hmm. people, that she had hung out with Andy Warhol. And it was interesting to me how she said, like, they weren't aware of how much impact she had, even though they seemed close to her and they, you know, they cared about her. But it, it's just interesting to see how there was that sort of divide uh, within the family and, and within, like, their perception of, like, what she meant to the community. Well, they didn't know her as what she meant to the community. They knew her as a family member. And, of course, they grew up with her. So they saw Marsha as a male. That's why I asked in the movie, what would you prefer me to call her just to be respectful to them mm-hmm. and her? Yeah. And they said they didn't care. So to me, Marsha was a she. Mm-hmm. Marsha's Marsha. Yeah. That's why she kept the name Marsha. Yeah. Uh, but to be respectful to the family, you know, like I'm one of 11 children. And still my mother would call me by the nickname they gave me because I'm the darkest one in my family. They would call me Negro. Mm. After I transitioned, they called me Negra. Mm-hmm. But it's a term of endearment from them. Yeah. So when they call her him, I could see, you know, they were raised with her. Yeah. What they saw her growing up, it's their loved one. And they did have love for her. Mm-hmm. And it shows. 
how the, the, it even shows when they talk about her. Yeah, I could tell. I could tell. Like it was, they. I mean, it's just a severe loss on on both sides for the community mm-hmm. and for the family. And for the family. Yeah, I do want to ask you though. Within the Negro Negra, you said it's a term of endearment. Like, yes. was that within your family? I know there's there can be colorism and all that right. stuff. But like for you, it was never like they they meant it in an antagonistic. No, no, way. no, not at all whatsoever. Okay. Like I said, I'm one of 11. My brothers and sisters, uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, green hair. Mm-hmm. I mean, green eyes, red hair. Yeah. But, um, you know, we're a mixed race in, in Borinquen, Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that to me, that was a term of endearment. Yeah, yeah. And you also mentioned at one point in the doc that your mom was totally... She, she was very racing. supportive. She made you dresses. She was a dressmaker. Yeah, she, she was very supportive. She yeah. taught me how to sew. She says, mm-hmm. watch what I do. Mm-hmm. And I watch what she did, and I learn. I make my own things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most of the costumes, well, all of the costumes that I did on stage during that time that I wore on stage, I made myself or she helped me make them mm. or she made them. Oh, that's so lovely. <laughs> and the dresses that I saw in the, in the documentary were very beautiful. Oh, I got about 60, you know, 60, 70 odd pictures from my performance. Mm-hmm. Nice. Now, as much as Marsha is a presence in the film, obviously we've already talked about Sylvia, but Sylvia is also a very huge presence in the mm-hmm. film. And, I mean, it seems like you can't really talk about one without talking about the other because they were so close. And there's a moment, well, there's a scene actually where I hadn't, I'd never seen it before, but that very emotional scene where Sylvia is at the gay uh, gay rights rally. That's they, in 1973 in, in Washington Square Park. I will not put up with this shit. I have been beaten. I have had my nose broken. I have been thrown in jail. I have lost my job. I have lost my apartment for gay liberation. And you all treat me this way? What the fuck's wrong with you all? Think about that. Yeah, and just like... I mean, I know David also, he's the director. He had a huge hand in deciding Mm -hmm. what he chose. But just seeing how uh, her give that speech about trying to speak up at the rally and then being booed by everyone in the audience for being trans and for not Mm -hmm. conforming to what, you know, the the gay rights movement at that time thought was the best way to put them forth. Like, I just found it incredibly powerful and, and also just really shocking and it seems like we're still we're still clearly having these issues well we do still have these issues like when when sylvia was dying i was next well i went the day before she passed i would give go go to st vincent's when it was open and uh give her lunch you know Mm -hmm. try to force her to eat but she didn't want it because at that time she was well she wasn't homeless at that time before she passed away right she was doing better before she passed away she lived at tranny house with chelsea and rusty right right she worked at metropolitan community church there was a shelter called sylvia's place Mm -hmm. and uh, i would send my trans clients there if they needed help and they would take them in Mm -hmm. you know um that scene was very hurtful to her. She left the movement, went up to Terrytown. In Westchester. In yeah. Westchester. And um, she, it always hurt her. And she told me in her dying bed, we can be our own worst enemy. And it's true. If you split us up, we, there's less divide and conquer. 
where she always said this government needs to have us presence. We've always been here and we're not going no place. But we do have the numbers. We've got the gays. We got the lesbians. We got the bi's. We got the trans. Now we got the queers mm. and straight allies. So we do have the numbers to keep the community up. And together, we can, you know, accomplish a lot more than what's been happening. One of the things that I think would be useful, I am I'm a cis woman of color, and there's a lot of discussion around how we can, like Sylvia talks about, like, we all must work together mm-hmm. or, like, divided we fall. And that's, it's true. Like, if, 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 honestly, if every person who has been marginalized, basically everyone who's not a straight white dude, work together in concert, this world would be a much better place. Um, but, like, what can someone like myself or some, any sort of allies to the queer community who don't necessarily fit into the queer community, what are the things that you think could be done so that Sylvia and everyone else's, like, visions can be realized, hopefully? Well, support us. And support the anti-violence project because the work they do is very crucial and very important. What does support look like? Like what kind of support? Financial support. Um, I wanted to give back to to the anti-violence project, so I volunteered. And what is one thing that uh, is not helpful that you see often from allies within the community or outside of the community? Blindness, deafness. The mute, see no evil, speak no evil, mm-hmm. hear no evil. Mm-hmm. Honey, there's evil all around us. Call it for what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In addition to Sylvia, we also had Elon. Elon Nettles. Elon Nettles as another, yet another sort of uh, strain of, of the film. And what was that? I, we we followed that that situation and and Elon Nettles, uh, for those who aren't aware, in 2013 she was a trans black woman who was murdered <laughs> in Harlem. Um, unlike in front wh- of a police station and cameras. Yes, and unlike Marsha, we know who did it. Uh, mm-hmm. The man who did it uh, came forward. He claimed he that she, he was flirting with her, but then discovered that she was trans or realized she was trans and his friends made fun of her him so he bashed her her head in mm-hmm. so we we know what happened to her and we're following the case and was that how did that come into being in in the documentary was that something that was just happened to be happening as the you were shooting the and and investigating and then it it was turned into sort of a bigger part Piece well, of... it, it correlates with the film also. Like yeah. as of um, two weeks ago, Friday, I don't know if there's been more, but there have been 21 murders of gender nonconforming people, and 18 of those murders have been trans women of color. It's still going on. Mm-hmm. In the movie, we say, like, we didn't hear about that because there wasn't much media coverage. Now there is. Mm-hmm. So we hear about it. And sometimes, well, most of the time it's overkill. Why bash somebody's head in? Why stab them 16, 17 times? For what? What reason? Hate? Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's what it is. <laughs> the, this political climate here today in the United States is just people spewing out hate, and they think they can do it, and it's coming from the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just really scary. And, and I think that to me, I, I saw with with Marsha, I think uh, granted, I was not 
well, I was alive then, but I was I was mm-hmm. a child when it happened, so there's no way I was going to be aware of it then. But it does seem like the only people when Marsha died and was found, the only people who were being active about it were people in the community. In the community, whereas correct. Whereas with, with, with Elon, it seems like that got more press. I remember I remember when it first happened. I remember mm-hmm. following it and and hearing about the, the case afterwards, like in the, in the Times and all these other places. And so it does seem like that um, juxtaposition of those two in the film really points out to some extent how far we've come, but then also not how far we've come. Because there's someone uh, at one point in the film, you are outside of the courthouse and uh, someone says, you know, well, where are all the people who were out here for gay marriage at the courthouse? That's but, true. That's uh, Ted McGuire said that. Yeah. Where are they? We used to march these streets back and forth. What happened to the T? And, you know, like I said, we you split us, they'll conquer. We need to be have to keep the unit the community together. If, you know, together we stand just like our national anthem. Together we stand, divided we fall. It's just the same old tactic divide and conquer but the community needs to stick together fight for the cause we fought for gay marriage why not you know fight for you know trans equality mm, yeah i mean i i know a lot of people in the community who feel as though gay marriage was just sort of the it was a not a not a purposeless cause but considering all the other issues workplace being mm-hmm. able to be like in marcia at one point says you know i'm not employed and I'm not going to get a job until yeah i won't i won't get a job i'm on welfare i won't get a job until people are treated right especially the women yeah yeah and it still stands yeah and it's it's just yeah i don't know the, the documentary just made me really um both hopeful but also a, a little um, depressed in that way, and uh, you know, it ends. I don't. I don't think it'll be a spoiler, but it ends with you sending all of the evidence you found to the FBI. Mm-hmm. What, like, what has happened with that? Is is there anything happening with There's it? So much has happened. Yeah, because um, we called the FBI office back in January. Mid January, and um, they didn't even have an answering machine, so we couldn't leave them a message. Then we found out that Kobe got fired. Who was Kobe again? The um, director of the FBI. Oh right, yes. Oh, Col- Comey. Comey. Oh, sorry, Comey. I, thought you, said, I thought you said Kobe. Comey yeah. got fired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, where are we now? So we're waiting to hear from whoever is out there that wants to help us mm. do something about this particular case. Because it's not only justice for Marsha, it's justice for so many others. Well, that's the one of the things you, you keep reiterating in the documentary, especially when one of your colleagues at AVP, she she makes a, a, a valid point, I think, about, you know, you're focusing all this, um, putting all this focus on Marsha, when we we have limited resources, we have limited you know amount of people to, to work on this, and the the numbers keep piling up of more recent yes. things. But you grew you grew really frustrated about it, and you really clung to the idea that you know we if we can get Marsha, we can get other we can help you others. Justice for others, like let's say 
um, the bashing in Queens where Letitia James right. Take your hands off my sister. Take your hands off my sister. Take your hands off my sister. Keep your hands to yourself. That's a new rallying call we have. Mm. And um, it's necessary. We have to stick together. Yeah. We need to stick together. We can't fall apart. Yeah. Do you think, though, do you see her side of it as well, though, that, well, maybe finding justice for someone like Elon Nettles, Nettles will also help Marsha in that way. It'll, it'll, it'll mean like Marsha didn't necessarily die in vain. In vain, yes. Mm-hmm. Our Rosa Parks didn't die in vain. Mm-hmm. She's still alive today within us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the other things I wanted to talk about before we go is you mentioned earlier your sexual assault uh, at when mm-hmm. you were working at the health care center in uh, Cobble Hill, was it? Yes. Yes, yes, in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. And... You know, obviously you're an advocate and that's part of part of what you have done and what you do. But did like were you hesitant at all to include it, include your own personal story in the documentary as well? Or was this something that you always felt like I need to include this? And no, I felt that it brought me to where I'm at now. So why not tell it? Mm -hmm. It's there. It happens. It happens more frequent than you know. Mm-hmm. And why shouldn't people hear about it? Mm. I'm not ashamed. They should be ashamed. Mm-hmm. I'm proud of who and what I am. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. My final question is, when is the last time you've saw something on TV or in film where you felt as though... You saw yourself in it. You felt represented in any way. I don't think I've ever seen myself represented in film anywhere. I've seen a lot of stereotypes, but not trans women. Who they really are, what they really do. You you see, you know, exaggerations of us, but not us as people who work, who love, who have families, who care about others, who share what they have to share. Just regular human beings. Let's face it. Yeah. I mean, the only exception I could think of would be uh, Paris is Burning, maybe, the documentary. But that's like a... That's a yeah, that's a documentary, yeah, Paris is Burning. Yeah, it's different. Well, I hope that's not always the case. I hope not, too. Maybe we can just bring it forth and... Out there in the open. Yes. Hey, there's another segment of this population Mm -hmm. that needs to be brought out more. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Victoria. Thank you for having me. Sharing the story and for pushing so hard to try and get Marsha's story out there and figure out what happened. Yes. Well, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Represent is produced by the lovely, amazing Verlyn Williams. Our excellent social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. And have you checked out our Instagram page yet? You should definitely check out our Instagram page. If you're already following us, you might have seen some of our stories from our weekend in New Orleans talking to Gabourey Sidibe for the New Orleans Film Festival. We'll be releasing that episode next week. 
Also, here's some exciting news for the kids in your life. Panoply has created Pinna, an entire audio service just for kids. Pinna is a standalone iPhone app filled with hours of original stories and serials, great podcasts, and audiobooks. Pinna is ad-free, guilt-free, and a great activity for car time, bath time, group time, bedtime, or anytime. Try Pinna for free. Go to pinna.fm slash listen to start your free trial today. All right, until next time.